You're listening to Just Ask Ing, a conversation about our sexuality and how we might manage it more intelligently. Good morning. I'm Jackie Shelton, and I'm sitting here this morning with Stephen Ng, MFT, and we have all kinds of things to talk about. I want to uh, say how glad I am that we can talk about these things from time to time. And when I say these things, I mean all things sexual. Absolutely. And so um, I heard that you had a TEDx talk recently. I did. And it was really a lot of fun. I had a great time. And I'm hoping to do more of those TED Talks, or whether it's TEDx or TED. I, I just... I think that they're so important, and it's such a fantastically human way of learning about new ideas. But what I did talk about was um, kind of a racy subject in the sense uh, that it was specifically about sex, and the name of the talk was, What's Your Magic Sex Number? The Magic Sex Number. Yeah, and I don't want to... I don't want to... dissuade people from listening to the talk so I'll let I'll let the talk speak for itself it's about 14 minutes long 13 minutes long something like that and I think people will find it's a lot of fun but it was um, in the context of a larger conversation that I didn't really have the time to talk about and is that the intentional interview by it chance? is it is <laughs> because the intentional interview uh, has so many different parts to it and let me back up a minute and explain what is an intentional interview. So normally when we get together with someone we're attracted to, there's a kind of a three-part process. Part one, I find out I'm attracted to her. Part two, I discover that the attraction is mutual. And then part three, we see if it's going to work out. And how do we do that? by just casually, chaotically hanging out. And we might go on specific dates and have some structure there. But really, there's no intentionality to it. There's very little mindfulness to it. We're caught up in the excitement and the thrill and the fun of meeting somebody we find attractive. And the intentional interview isn't designed, thank God, to suck all the fun out of the experience, but it is designed to give some sense of intentionality to the people who are engaged in getting to know each other and enjoying each other's company. That intentional interview uh, has a number of components, uh, but mostly they're not about so much about the other person as they are, you know, like those lists people publish. I want somebody who basically fulfills all the the diagnostic criteria of a Boy Scout thrifty, clean, reverent, brave. Six foot two, has a car, has a PhD. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Makes this much money. Yeah, and and the, the men have their own list in that, in that way. But it's more about knowing yourself and knowing what it is you need because most of us, at least those of us of a certain age, have had the experience of being very easily able to fall in love with someone who is really not right for us. It's easy to fall in love for most of us. Most, the majority of humans are pretty much loving. And so we can see what is lovable about another person. But what we don't see are the many areas of incompatibility. And in the intentional interview, we refer to those as deal breakers. It doesn't mean, oh, that the other person isn't a great person. It doesn't mean that they might not be a great person for some other friend of ours or some other person in in the future. But it, a deal breaker would mean 
that they're really not right for us. And, and a simple example would be something that's seemingly so trivial. A lot of these are very trivial, and these would be under the category of personal deal breakers. But the trivial becomes less trivial when it's repeated over time, sort of like that proverbial Chinese water torture, where it's a drop, just a drop on your forehead, but it's on the same damn place over and over and over and over. And finally, after a while, uh, it supposedly drives us crazy. And there are things like that, like falling in love with someone and seeing how lovable they are. And they're just wonderful, but on a scale of personal tidiness, whereas I might be, uh, say, on a scale of one to 10, I'm an eight. And I discover over time that the other person is a three. Now, unless I'm resigned to living with the home in our future at a level of a three, I'm otherwise going to be occupied at running around, picking up after them and, and cleaning up. Now, I don't believe that there's any particular virtue in being an eight as compared to a three. I don't think that there is any virtue, at least not any demonstrable virtue uh, outside of my grandmother's view of life. <laughs> but, but I do think that it makes sense that we would try to make a life with somebody we're not constantly nagging and trying to correct. So you talk about an intentional interview. Obviously, you're not going to ask somebody. Say, so are you a, a pig? Are you a pig <laughs> on your first or second or third date? No, no, no. So how does one go about? Well, you know, it's it's not. A, first, we start off with the acknowledgement that there is such a thing as a body of information we really need to know that otherwise could be a deal breaker. And then the next step is realizing that some interviewers are, are whether it's a job interview situation or a personal interview, some interviewers are just better than others. And then sorting out what are the skill sets that people need in order to make that conversation so safe. And when I say that conversation, by the way, I'm not referring to a one-hour conversation. I'm referring to an ongoing conversation. But how do we make that conversation so safe that whatever the correct or true answer is, that's the answer that they feel comfortable sharing. And that's that takes some self-awareness for it to be okay. And, and the reason it ultimately really is okay is because really it's in the best interest of both of us to be aware of the fact that there are deal breakers in the lives or in the presence of those people we can find very attractive, very wonderful in and of themselves but with whom we simply couldn't really make a life over time. So, and we've talked about online dating before, and, and one of the reasons that I stopped doing online dating is because it, the first date was a job interview. <laughs> Every single time you would sit down with somebody, and because it's online dating, you know that you're there for a date, you know, for a very specific reason, and then they'll say, what happened with your marriage? Who who did what to whom, and whose fault was it? And, they, and right. very interrogative, and I, I just... Yeah, it is like an interrogation, and that's not what I have in mind. What I have in mind is something more natural, more organic. It just flows. And after all, dating, what's the first rule in dating? Of course, to have fun. And so because it's a fun activity, and by the way, if it's not fun, we shouldn't be dating them. If it's not, But because we're having fun, there is no rush. And for those of us who really like people, 
getting to know someone better, particularly someone we're already highly attracted to, is actually part of the fun. So there isn't a rush. We don't have to shine a light in their eyes or break out the brass <laughs> knuckles or any of that kind of stuff. We get to just really calmly get to know them. The only difference with the intentional interview is that there's some intentionality, some mindfulness to it, so that we're really much more self-aware. And I brought up an example of a uh, a personal deal breaker, which could ha which has to do with, say, neatness or tidiness. And there are hundreds of those kinds of personal deal breakers, some of which are so petty, so minor, that we might feel personally embarrassed to admit that that's something that really bugs us and something that might ruin an otherwise perfect relationship. But there are those things because we are sometimes that petty. Uh, it's not as though, after all, we love with the love of God Almighty, <laughs> completely and utterly without need. We have needs. And some of our needs are our needs for, for example, that old saying, cleanliness is next to godliness. Again, my grandmother loved that. And, and yet, there really is no moral weight to how much soap one uses in a given week. So there are those who are perhaps, an, again, an eight on a scale of one to 10. And there are other equally wonderful or even more wonderful people who are at a two or a three. So let's move away from, from hygiene for a second. Sure. So so just for an example, because um, the Academy Awards were, were this week, Yeah. I love movies, like yes. stupidly. Um, <laughs> does that mean that in the course of a, a dating process, I find out that the person I'm dating doesn't like movies at all, and so that that's a deal breaker? Not so much, I think, because I think the deal breaker would be if they could share zero aesthetic intimacy with you. They weren't interested in beauty in any of its forms. But whether or not they, that would be a deal breaker, I think, for those of us who appreciate beauty, like the beauty of art or garden or music or, or movies. But if I think that if, um, say, I'm into movies or I'm into gardening and the other person doesn't share my passion for that, that's just an interesting fact because I don't need them to be exactly like me. In fact, the differences are part of what makes the relationship so interesting and really so ad advantageous because ultimately with the reason our species does uh, mate in this particular way sexually is so that we can have a strategic alliance with someone who brings different skills, traits, and abilities into the relationship. I've already got one of me. I don't need another one of me. And the fact that she's different isn't by itself a deal breaker. So differences are not what we're looking for. So we have a couple of minutes left on this topic. So what are we looking for? Well, again, uh, knowing oneself, and it's, it's really ultimately an act or a practice. That's a better word for it, like the Buddhists talk about. A practice of humility, simply understanding and embracing our own limitations because we have little pet peeves that are not so little, that really bug us and that could ruin a relationship. <laughs> and of course, there are those uh, universal deal breakers that uh, would make an, a successful, intimate relationship impossible for anyone, like verbal and physical abuse. No matter how irregular or rare it might be, uh, such behavior really makes it impossible for us to have a truly successful, intimate relationship. 
And understanding that I think is very liberating because it's very, it provides so much direction in, in a world where, you know, there are literally billions of wonderful people, but they're not all equally wonderful for me. So tell me what this all has to do with a magic sex number. <laughs> well, we all have our sexual appetites, right? So some of us not only like sex, uh, say, once every other day, for example, some of us even feel uncomfortable. In fact, most of us feel uncomfortable if we're not having sex at about the level we feel comfortable with in a relationship with someone we love and adore and whose touch thrills us. And so if my partner is somebody who likes sex so much that they have to have it once a month, and I'm the sort of person who likes having it every day, well, there's some built-in incompatibility there that we could possibly make a compromise over and thus ensure that everyone is equally miserable. So on that note, um, if you'd like to learn more about the magic sex number, tune in to Stephen's TEDx talk, and we will include a link um, somewhere uh, with this so that you can you can uh, watch that and let us know what you think. The easiest way right now is just to go to, to YouTube and enter the name Stephen Ng, and it's at the top of the video selections. Very cool. Okay, so I'm going to change the subject on you. Sure. Recently in your city, um, you had a situation where uh, several women were suing the city for um, su suing people at the city for sexual harassment, and that case has been going on for a long time. And the city attorney recently came out and asked for one of the complaints, um, one of the plaintiffs' uh, sexual history. Uh, not just their sexual history, but their sexual history for the last twenty plus years of uh, all employment they've ever had and all the people that she's ever had sex with. This is amazing to me that in 2018 this happened. Well, it's a bit amazing to me, too, because it has such a, a overall chilling effect. If everyone who was sexually harassed had the obligation to come forward and disclose their entire sexual history to the public, I, I think it would have a very chilling effect on anyone coming forward for a variety of reasons. But uh, what horrifies me is the medieval nature of this kind of behavior because it, it gets us back to um, really the Middle Ages where if a woman, and of course it was always a woman, who is accused of being a witch, uh, we would uh, make her weigh her down with stones and then put her in uh, water over her head so that if she drowned, well— then she was a normal, regular, everyday kind of gal. But if she somehow survived and maybe even floated up to the top, well, clearly she was a witch, and then we would need to burn her to this burn her at the stake. And the problem with this is just like that uh, uh, sort of witchcraft trial, this situation makes sure that no matter what the outcome of the trial, the woman loses anyway. And uh, not, not that it's always women who are filing sexual harassment complaints. There are plenty of men who do as well. But no matter what the outcome, there's a great loss. And in my city, at least, this is extremely controversial, I'm glad to say. So there are plenty of people writing letters to the editor and speaking out publicly against this idea. But I, And I hate to call it victim shaming, uh, but it's more, to me, it seems more like victim torture and very calculated and, and really a throwback to a far earlier time when we might have wondered, did the rape victim really have it coming? 
because she was dressed so provocatively that, of course, a normal guy would have raped her. So she's sort of really not a sympathetic victim. She's kind of slutty. Now, that gets us into direct victim shaming, right? But it it just it seems different now because people know better. And, it, and we know that it has nothing to do with whether or not something happened in that particular instance. Even the fact that, let's say, I'm a man with a history of violence and I complain about being arrested and pr- police brutality, that is a charge that has to be investigated on its own. It doesn't matter if I've had a history of violence leading up to my arrest. But when it comes to sex, we really feel differently about it. So obviously you're not involved with this case in any way, so we're, we're looking at it from the outside. Yeah. But the, the, pros- the attorney, do you think that's, this is intimidation? Do you think that's what this is about? He's just trying to make everybody just shut up and quit? Yeah, clearly, because for him, uh, winning is everything. And the, the idea that the truth might out is not such a paramount concern because the truth, of course, has nothing to do with what or who she was doing 20 years ago. It has to do with what happened while she was employed working with that particular city employee. So all these other extraneous things kind of take us back to the 1950s and Joe McCarthy, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party or slept with somebody in the Communist Party? And so it it just it seems utterly irrelevant and but it's it's about getting the win at the end of the day because winning for this particular attorney seems to be everything. Okay. Well, we will continue to update um, our audience as this as this case moves forward and we find out more. Yeah, I um, hope so. If it's okay with you, I would like to talk about something fun <laughs> at the end of this conversation. Sure. Um, did you watch the uh, Academy Awards last night? I did. It was and Shape of Water won, and I'm very very happy about that. I was equally impressed. I didn't see all of the movies that were that it was running against, but I did see Shape of Water, and I felt so strongly that it deserved to win, perhaps irrationally because I hadn't seen so many of the other films, but it was really amazing. I saw them all. Ah, you did. I saw all of the all of the best. You picture. are crazy about movies. I am. I am. It's a little bit of sickness, but. Um, <laughs> And it came down to two movies for me for for Best Picture, Shape of Water, and Get Out. Um, one of the things that struck me on Facebook is several people who are who are just angry that Shape of Water won, and I have to assume that's because they haven't seen it, and they think it's about a, a bestiality movie about a woman having sex with a fish. And we yeah. should we should probably stop right here and say spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it, you should quit listening now because <laughs> we're not good at holding things back. Or you could go ahead and keep listening and you'll enjoy the film even more <laughs> despite the spoilers. You know, I do think that there are reasons why people were upset and angry. Some of it is just, you know, we live in hyperpartisan times where people get angry if they don't have their way and, and they have a hard time accepting that other people might be different. But I do think that Guillermo uh, del Toro was really um, driven by a genius impulse in creating this film because he had a number of things to say to all of us that I I have a hard time imagining being said in any other way. I know that he's had a history of using fable and myth to tell stories that are somewhat larger than life, Uh, but 
I think in this case, at least, his use of myth created a story that really is truly more human than it would have been otherwise, even though it involves creatures who are other than human. And the bottom line for me after, you know, there's some very explicit uh, scenes where we're clearly aware of uh, the main lead, an actress who is masturbating in 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 a very full bathtub. And water's splashing all over the floor, and she has it synchronized so that she can be done with her business and get on with her day and have her hard-boiled eggs to take with her to work. But I don't think the movie was about sex per se as much as it was about love and the idea that we just love who we love. But I do think that the the masturbation scenes were interesting in that they were every day and timed every day. I mean, it was obviously a very specific part of her day. And very mechanistic because of that. Right. But it was obviously something she needed. It was something she needed to do, and it was something that she wasn't getting her needs met in other ways. Well, and that was, that was I think, another one of his messages in the film is that, you know— I, and it's really it resonated with me because I see that as a, the larger part of my own mission in life is to simply help people find a safe way to talk about our humanity in the context of sexuality, to find a safe way to talk about what it means to be a sexual being. And the film is like a fable in the sense that it's so innocent and it's so full of wonder and awe and beauty that the purient elements really aren't purient anymore. They're just simply part of the wonderful business of being a living creature. And for that reason, I think the gift the gift to the viewing public is that we can all relax a little bit more when we're talking about our sexuality, whether we're getting our needs met in a somewhat frantic, mechanistic, and even <laughs> individual way, or, or if there's somebody else in the room. I think that... And, and obviously, from the film, we find out there has to be somebody else in the room for us to really get all of our sexual needs met. We have to be in a relationship with someone else. And, of course, her relationship with uh, the beast in the film, this creature, is who is not really human. He's actually—the uh, relationship is larger than life, and it's full of nuance and love and mutual affection— and it's really different from, you know, what we would expect from uh, pornography, for example. But I did, I, I appreciated the fact that there was a courtship. Um, she, it wasn't like she just met this creature and the sex happened. I mean, they, they got to know each other. They did get to know each other on a deeper level before anything happened, which is not, are weird words about a movie with a sea monster in it. Yeah, it they are weird, but but a sentient creature. So right. this sentient creature maybe would be like somebody uh, from a science fiction background thinking about worlds uh, at the extreme outer parts of the universe, full of beings who are different from us, but with whom one might fall in love and might feel some sort of attraction. So not so altogether different, and and we've had undercurrents of this in our in our literature and our art for forever with uh, the love affairs with vamp- vampires and 
other sorts of creatures who are really no longer human. Right. So the idea is that really it's about love. But again, back to Guillermo del Toro's movie, I think what was rather beautiful was the the purity and the innocence of their sexuality. We see them entwined, the two main characters entwined in an amorous embrace underwater. And it's so lovely and so beautiful to see that part of the mating process. It was like watching uh, two dolphins or, <laughs> you know, some other than human creatures uh, mating. And it wasn't about sexual arousal for the viewer. There were, I, don't, I doubt that there was anybody watching that who was sexually aroused by it. But I think it was just very moving to realize that love not only can be that way, but but really our sexuality should be that way, where it's a, a wonderful part of an otherwise wonderful life. That's really that's really nice. And I, and I like that you're using the word innocent to describe this, because that's not the word I'm hearing from from some of the people who um, are not pleased with this movie. Really? I You know, it's so odd to me because... Uh, the monster in the film, of course, is is a human who is torturing the creature, trying to, and then thinking about vivisection, so that he can understand what's going on inside of this creature. And our antiheroes include, uh, well, the female lead who is deaf and and no, uses. She's, she's not deaf. She's mute. Oh, she's mute. Excuse me, and she uses sign language to communicate, um, and. This is all set in the early 1960s, and so um, we all remember, well, those of us old enough remember what the civil rights were back then. And her, her helpers include a gay man, a black woman, and this creature who is not human. Oh, yeah, and just for good measure, just to round out this merry band of miscreants, uh, we have a communist agent who has been sent over by the Soviet Union to somehow steal the, the creature's secrets or, or uh, if he can't do that, kill it, uh, both of which he ends up not doing. And he ends up helping preserve not only the creature's life, but the possibility of love. He taps into his own humanity. So, and you bring up the, uh, her friends, the gay man and the, and the black woman, who both have their own stories um, that start out tragic. and Yeah, their own stories are, are terribly sad, and, and lonely because one is not in a relationship with anyone but longs to be, and he longs to have that kind of significance. And why can't he? Yeah, and, and he can't because, well, it's early 1960s and he's gay. But the other one, uh, she's in a relationship with a husband who's, although she's in a room with someone, she's not really with him, and he's not at all with her in any meaningful or satisfying way. So there no one is more alone than they are in the whole film because um the main the lead who is mute uh and lives alone she's actually very very sweet and innocent and almost um uh, i don't want to say like mary poppins kind of ch uh, cheery and happy but she does have a a very natural buoyancy to her character and uh, no double entendre meant there because she's <laughs> very attracted to water as well. And, and you know, that's another thing about her love. And, and I think love in general, when we really connect with someone and we feel safe enough to open up, we find that not only are they other than mainstream, 
because frankly, we all are, we, f- we discover that we ourselves are very different and other than mainstream, and that there's a part of our sexuality that would have lots of people on Facebook writing nasty things about us too. So to be able to have that safe place, that intimate space where we can safely share our lives with each other, I think that's the gift of this kind of love in a world where we really, as a people, we don't understand what intimacy is or how to create it. That's really beautiful. So on that note, um, if you would watch the movie, comment, and let us know what you think. Um, if you want to comment without seeing the movie, I guess you can, but it's kind of pointless. So <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we will be back here next week, and um, thank you for a nice conversation. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Just Asking. If you have questions for Stephen, please tweet us at Stephen Ng MFT.